Hello and welcome to the podcast for Lansing Avenue Baptist Church in Jackson, Michigan. This is Pastor Steve Sebring, and for this one, I'd like to start into a series that will be separate from our normal Sunday messages. This is a Sunday school class that I have taught here at, at our church. I uh, also get to teach this to freshmen at the Christian school here in, in town. So this is going to be a class called, you know, How Did We Get Our English Bible? Uh, in other words, it's looking at how we came to have God's Word in our own language, and even the different translations or the, the many you know, different versions of it today, knowing that this can be a, a bit of a, a spicy topic for, for individuals and for churches, and there has been lots of uh, even confusion around it. And um, So hopefully throughout this, uh, this can be a help to those who listen and and. Ultimately, the, the goal here is for us to appreciate the Scriptures, uh, to uh, be thankful that God has given us His Word, that we have so many resources for His Word, and, and that even you know, faithful servants of God have been used to uh, you know, watch over His Word, to uh, sacrifice so much just so the average person could be able to read the Bible in his or her own language, uh, for us that being English. Uh, there's history here, there's doctrine here, and I will just say again, the, the goal here is to appreciate uh, the work of God giving us the Word and the, the faithfulness and, and passion of His followers in, in doing their best to, to care for and translate and pass down that Word. And so, for today, uh, we're actually going to look at sort of some foundational things on what the Bible is for us. Um, the, the first lesson of this I've titled, Revelation, Inspiration, and Canon. And these will be things that ought to help us just going forward on how we view the Word. Um, uh, just before, again, we get started here. I uh, want us to come away with the thought that we have God's Word, it's trustworthy, and we ought to be so thankful that we have God's Word in our own language. Also, that we have God's Word in our own language in in the numerous translations that we have, and lots to learn from there, and even great study tools that are available as a part of that. But we'll go ahead here in... In our notes, or what I have for notes, uh, I may see if I can make these available um, along with the, the podcast. But uh, to start out looking at section one, which is revelation, you know, revelation being how God reveals himself to us. And there are going to be two broad categories of, of revelation. The first one is going to be called general revelation. And this is how God shows himself to us broadly rather than directly. And we get to see this in at least a few different ways. One is just to look at creation around us. Uh, that the world around us shows us a creator. Shows us a maker that is you know, ordered, uh, who is wise, who is powerful. Now you can tell things have affected that creation you know we in the scriptures you know we see the sin come in and the fall affects that creation in in many many ways but looking at creation you see order Uh, you can see beauty Uh, to look at you know the beauty of a a sunset to look at just the order of of nature around us whether it be animals or weather or uh, geography or whatever it is just to see this the beauty of creation pointing to a creator. Just as you know, you look at a, a beautiful piece of furniture, you know, somebody designed that, somebody made that. It didn't just happen. We, we can see that in just the world around us. Uh, again, we can also see the, the effects of sin all around us, too, on that creation. But uh, another way is, is God's providence, and, and just the way God cares over people. Um, in events and in their lives, 
to show his, his care, his, his love. You can see numerous examples of this in the Bible itself to see how he works in people's lives. You can see this in uh, the stories of those who have come before us. And you can see it in, in our own lives as well. Just God at work in life. Him doing things that just only he could do. And the third one is conscience. Uh, we have this sense of right and wrong. And each person has it. And there are things that we we notice that that uh, are right or wrong. And this is evidence of our God who put that uh, within us. Now, a conscience isn't perfect, and it can be warped. It can be uh, neglected, and it can stop working. But we still have this, this sense of, of right and wrong. And without God as the one who gives us that, without God as... You know, that standard for right and wrong, then right and wrong have no meaning other than whichever person or government is in charge uh, gets to decide what's right and wrong. The Without without God as that moral law giver, right and wrong are only just who's in charge rather than what's truly right and wrong. And so these things show us, I'm sure there are other ways you look at it, but the, these things show us God in a broad way. You know, Romans 1 uh, is a place that you could look where we see that uh, through creation, through his, his work, that God has made it very clear that he is there, that he is powerful. He He deserves for us to, to come to him. Um, we can use, again, I said in Romans 1, you can look at verse 18 and on. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You know, man just naturally recognizes you know, there's something here. Uh, that God is at work, that uh, something is wrong also uh, in sin. But he keeps going, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So looking at creation, you get to see certain things about God. Again, we get to see his order, his power, and those sorts of things. Now, we don't get to know the specifics of you know the gospel, you know that you know we've sinned against God, and Christ is the the sacrifice, and in His death and resurrection, He pays for sin and conquers death, so that through faith in Him we can be forgiven, made whole, have a home in heaven forever. Uh, we don't get to know those those specifics, but we'll talk about that here in a moment. But this is general revelation. This is enough to to show us God is real, and man has a problem. <laughs> and that there's there's something going on. Again, as I said before, we look at creation, the order, and the beauty, but we can also see man's got uh, this thing called sin. There, there really is right and wrong, and there's this problem in God in man's relationship with God. And so we we see that all around us, and we even see that no matter who we are, what we believe, or whatever, that man is is worshiping something, man is serving something, even if it is, you know, man sets himself up as his own God and has his own form of religion in that sense, but that God through, again, creation, providence, conscience, he has shown he is real, and it's clear that something is wrong in this world because of sin, and and God gives us more than that in what we'll talk about next, the First, we have general revelation. Second, we have special revelation. Um, whereas general is broad, special revelation is specific and direct. And there are a number of forms of this. <clears throat> uh, you can look at the Old Testament. You can look at well all the scriptures and see many of these forms. Uh, to see that you know, when they would cast lots... Uh, you sort of like dice that God would show uh, ways to make decisions through that. That uh, the priests had the urim and the thummim 
which were, were similar to that for them, uh, helping them to determine what God's will was with this or that. Uh, then you also you could see things like dreams and visions where God would appear to you know, Joseph <clears throat> and through a dream tell him that uh, you know, his family and many others would bow before him uh, one day. Of course, you know, his, his brothers were not happy to hear that, but that was him, God showing Joseph at a young age he was going to do something amazing with him. Now he had to go through all sorts of struggles through that as God worked on him and took him through um, you know, being sold off by his brothers, him being thrown in prison, and, and all of this stuff. But God brings him to be the, you know, the number two there in Egypt. And his family truly does bow down to him. And so there's, God uses dreams and visions with people like Joseph and Daniel and Paul to... Uh, Communicate messages to, you know, give warning, give hope, tell of, of news, those sorts of things. Uh, so dreams and visions are certainly used by God. So are things like uh, what you could call a theophany, which is an actual appearance of God. A uh, subcategory of that would be a Christophany, where you where Christ makes an appearance. You know, examples of theophany, you can see you get... Uh, uh, you know, Jacob wrestles with God, or uh, things like that, where God appears, God speaks, and His people are to hear. But those are direct, uh, specific messages. He also uses, you know, sends angels and prophets uh, to, you know, share those messages with you know, who He wants to share them with. Where He sends you, know, Gabriel to Joseph and Mary. Where He He sends. You know, prophets like like Isaiah or, or Habakkuk or others, uh, to those folks to you know, share this message. If it's you, know, even like Jonah, his his job as a prophet was to go to the people of Nineveh and warn them that uh, judgment was coming unless they repented. Of course, Jonah didn't want to do that because he didn't want God to show mercy, uh, which is what happens when the people of Nineveh repent and and God spares them. But he would send messengers like angels and prophets. He also used events to show who he is, <clears throat> to uh, share his message. Uh, you know, the exodus from Egypt for for God's people. That was you know through the ten plagues, God was declaring Himself to be the one and only God, uh, declaring Himself to be more powerful than anything the Egyptians had been able to come up with to worship. Um, and so you get to see God showing himself through uh, the plagues, the exodus, the, the conquest of the promised land, and all these things to God revealing himself. Uh, there are many more events to look at as well, but God uses these things to show himself specifically, uh, that he is the one to serve, here's his character, uh, here's his, his commands, here's what he desires, uh, they're his revelation. Another is... Uh, you know Jesus Himself, <clears throat> as you know the second member of the Trinity, as the Son of God, that He, you know, walking, talking revelation, that He was showing people what God is like in His actions. He was, you know, telling people what is true through His words. That He was giving warning and blessing. And Jesus Himself is is a form of special revelation. He is specific. He's direct. And when people got to see him, they got to see God, as, as Jesus even would say, that you know, when you see me, you see the Father. And, uh, so Jesus himself is a form of special revelation. And the final one I'll, I'll mention here is really what we're looking at in this class, which is uh, the Bible, the Scriptures. They are God's specific, direct revelation. Uh, the Scriptures are... God's word, uh, as we'll, we'll look at here more specifically in a moment. But uh, the, the Bible is where we get to know who God is. Um, we get to hear of His character. We get to, to hear of His works. We get to uh, to know you know, you know we get to be warned of sin. We get to, to to have commands of what it looks like to to follow God righteously we get promises of the future we get all these things and most importantly we get the gospel 
to see this big overarching story of man, you know, you know sorry, I should start back. This overarching story of, of God creating this world perfect, of sin entering into the world and messing that up and causing a separation between God and man. And then God working out his perfect plan to send his son Christ to take our place on the cross and to rise again so that he might provide forgiveness for man, so that he might reconcile or repair that relationship with man. And those who trust in him will be you know, restored in a, in a proper righteous relationship with God and be uh, able to look forward to this this future in in heaven, and in the scriptures we see as you know those who have come to faith in in Christ are part of God's family, and they uh, well in the Old Testament looking forward to Christ, and us looking back to Christ, we look to Him in faith, and all of us get to look forward to the promises of God setting all things right, and Christ taking His place on the throne uh, over His kingdom, and. We see this big overarching story of the redemption of of man and God getting the glory for that. So scripture is this wonderful, special revelation for us. And, and so we're going to be looking at uh, what it means for the Bible to be that that revelation for us. And so again, I said this this lesson is revelation, inspiration, and canon. That was you know, us looking at <clears throat> revelation, you know, God revealing himself to man. And now we'll move into, what does it mean for the Bible to be inspired? What does that mean? What are the effects of that? Uh, and this is certainly going to have a, uh, huge effects for how we treat the Bible and translation and multiple versions and, and all of this stuff. And manuscripts, and and what we'll get into what's called textual criticism, and, and all that stuff. Uh, our view of inspiration is going to have a big effect on that. Charles Ryrie, in his book, Basic Theology, has a definition for inspiration that can be helpful for us. It goes like this. God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded, without error, his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. There are going to be some things here that are important to keep in mind. Uh, Just to go back to that definition again, that God superintended the human authors of the Bible, showing us that God used man to give his word. And we'll look a little bit more at the nature of that in a moment, but that God didn't just plop a word down for us, it didn't just drop from the sky, but he used man to write it. And the Bible has many authors. Uh, we have Moses writing the first five books of, of the Old Testament. Uh, we have Paul writing epistles. We have, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have David writing Psalms. We have many authors of, of the Scriptures. But it is God who superintends that. God who moves these men to write. Uh, so God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error. And so we see here uh, in his definition, he's showing that you know, these authors wrote, but they, they, they were recording what they saw. Uh, they could also be you know, gathering information. You know, they're you know, gathering up genealogies and, and things like that to, to put in here. Uh, but it was God working through that, and they do that without error. And so God's message is shared, uh, again, without error. This is truth. There's, there's, there are no errors whatsoever uh, in these writings. And specifically, as you know, Charles Ryrie does here at the end of his definition, uh, this is in the words of their original writings. This, this, without error, this is going to apply only to those very, very original documents that, that we call the autographs. The, the very ones written by, 
Moses, uh, the very ones written by by Paul, or really for something like that, it would have been uh, you know, Paul speaking and then someone else you know, writing it out as he spoke. But, but those original documents are without error in every way. And as we'll talk about with, with our manuscript discussion, uh, not in this lesson, but, but coming up, that we'll, we'll see that things happen as humans get involved, and, and there are many, many copies and, and things to deal with, with that. But, but in those original writings called the autographs, there's no error whatsoever. Now, I will say before we get to the discussion of those manuscripts that uh, through this class, I want us to, to understand we have God's Word and it is reliable. One great thing that we'll get to when we look at the manuscripts is <laughs> there is a mountain of evidence uh, for the the Scriptures. And even the, the differences that we'll talk about that you might see in different manuscripts are are very minor and and really don't affect any truth, any doctrine. Uh, but they're something to work with. Uh, so really, hopefully, as we do get to discuss that, it ought to just reassure for you that you know the Bible has been you know faithfully kept, and and we have mounds and mounds of of evidence of it. But so we've already seen here again in this definition of inspiration that God is the one who's at work that He uses. Uh, uses human authors, that it is without error in those original documents we call the autographs. Now, uh, just to look at a few passages here in the Bible, how it talks about itself and inspiration, uh, one of those really important passages, and we'll look at uh, three, though there are more than that, uh, one really important passage would be Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 19 to 21. And in those verses you can read, <clears throat> And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So in these verses, we see uh, some important things going on. Uh, we see that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. When we talk about prophecy, prophecy is uh, simply you know, God's message being shared to God's people through through a prophet. That... Um, and since all of Scripture is prophecy, it's God's message being given to God's people. We often think of, of prophecy as just telling the future, but that's really just a portion of what prophecy is. It's um, God sending a, an ambassador with his message to his, his people. And so we have here that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, the Bible is given to be understood that you do not have to be a part of a special group to get it. Uh, that the now with that, you know, the Spirit works and helps us to understand that God works in our hearts to help us to to get the Bible. Uh, that a believer is going to be able to uh, to understand it better than than those who don't. But but it's there. It's plain. It's meant to be understood. Uh, that the the meaning is there. It's not behind the text. It's not a mystical thing. Uh, but the truth is there, and God is sharing it clearly. Uh, <clears throat> and we see this because you know, prophecy never came by the will of man. Uh, that it wasn't man's decision to share these things. Man didn't decide to give the Bible. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is the one who moved Moses and David and and. Paul and Peter and others to to write these things uh, to speak them and to write them that this is the the work of God uh, through these these men now uh, we'll we'll discuss it a little bit more with the next verse, but uh, to see that these men didn't just become robots through which God worked here to give the word, but God used them in that that process 
But it, the important thing here is that, the, you know, for one, the Bible's meaning and message is there to be understood, and that man isn't the one who decided to write the Bible. It is God who works. It is God who has given the word through these men. Uh, we'll see a little bit more about this in, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That all scripture is given by what we have here literally being inspiration is literally God breathed. That this is God's word out of his, his mouth. And so we have the Word of God, and that Word of God is profitable. It is good for us for four things. For doctrine, that's truth. It's teaching what we believe. It's also good for reproof. It's good for showing us, you know, it's being that mirror for us, showing us where we are wrong, where we fall short. Uh, You know, in order for us to... It's often said, you know, the first step of dealing with the problem is recognizing the problem. And that the, the Bible is very good at being that mirror for us. Here's where you fall short. Here's where uh, you don't match up with what God wants for you and what he has for you in your life. And so it's good for us for what we believe. It's good for us for, you know, showing us we're wrong. But it doesn't just leave us hanging there. It is also good for us for correction. That once we see what's wrong, the Bible shows us how that can change, how God can be at work in your life, and uh, how that wrong word can be changed to something good, how how we can learn and grow. Uh, Ephesians 4 is one place to where we see the description of us putting off the old man, the old nature, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, and then putting on the new man, new nature. Uh, and Paul uses examples, like uh, if... You lie. Uh, that is, you put off lying, put off the you know, acts of the old man. You be renewed in the spirit of your mind, being that you allow the scripture to teach you how you treat truth, how you use your words, all these things. The Bible is to inform you, and so you're to be renewed in the spirit of your mind by the word of God. And then, as a result of that, following through with it, you, you put on what the new man would do, and that is to speak the truth. Uh, another example Paul gives is you know, theft, that you, you put off theft, you stop stealing, and you, you know, again, let the scriptures teach you about possessions and people and, and all of that. And then as a result, in its place, you put what the new man would, would do, which is you would work hard and you'd be generous to others. And so we see the correction here. God doesn't just leave us hanging, tell us we're awful, and then leave us alone, but, but he gives us what's true, he shows us where we fall short, he shows us how to learn and grow, and then fourth, it is good for instruction in righteousness. Uh, in other words, it, it's good for continual faithful living. That, you know, as some put it, it, it teaches us what is right, it shows us where we're not right, shows us how to get right, and it shows us how to stay right. Uh, the, the Bible is so valuable for all that, but it's valuable for that because where we began at the beginning of verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is God's very Word. This is what He has given us. And to what extent uh, is that true? How far does this go? Is this just, you know, just in the ideas, you know, some... Some out there kind of put it that way, that God's word isn't so much in the actual words, it's not in specific commands, it's, it's just in the, the general gist of things that God is there. Um, but we'll see that that's really not what's going on, that God's word is just that, it's God's word and it is very specific. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, helps us with this as he speaks. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. He didn't come to to get rid of the scriptures who had come before. But instead, he says here, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I came to fulfill all the things in the scriptures, to to be that 
sacrifice which was promised, to live out the word in this life. Verse 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He's saying not one jot or one tittle will will go away until everything is fulfilled. And what's he talking about here? What's you know the one jot and, and one tittle? Now the one jot here he's referring to uh, the letter Yod. Uh, it's a very small, to us it looks like an apostrophe, very small letter in, in Hebrew, the smallest letter. So he's saying that not even the smallest letter will go away until everything is fulfilled. And then, but he goes further. Uh, no, not one jot or one tittle. Now, a tittle was the uh, one little line as a part of a letter that would help you distinguish that letter from another. Uh, for example, in English, oh, you know, we have a G and we have a C. Uh, the G has that extra little line to tell you that this is a G and not a C. And Jesus is saying here, every little bit of that is mine, and it will come true. That, that God's inspiration goes down to the very details. And again, in the autographs, the very originals, it is perfect. It is without error. And so the inspiration does go down to the very words. Uh, there are some theological words that uh, if you want to know them, you can. If not, it's okay. Uh, talk about you know, inspiration being you know, verbal and plenary, meaning that it's verbal in its you know, in the actual words and plenary in, it, in all of its fullness that we have here God's word down to the very word. And so this brings me to say that when looking at translations, when looking at inspiration, when looking at the original documents, uh, I would say that you know, the Bible is inspired in perfection to the very smallest little letter in those original documents, in the autographs. Everything is perfect. That is God's word, just as he intended, it, intended in every way. Now, what we have since that, as we'll look, and again, I think we have you know, all the reason in the world to have, to have great confidence in the Scriptures because of the mounds and mounds of evidence for it. But what we have is... you know. A Bible in English, when the Bible was originally written in you know, Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And now we have a, a translation, which I would say is, now again, I say a translation. We have numerous translations in English, but uh, we have translations in English that are inspired as they reflect the originals, the autographs. And I would say the same thing about the the manuscripts, the many, many manuscripts that are available, that they are inspired, uh, they are God's word as they reflect the autographs, as they reflect those very originals. And so, uh, and again, uh, we have all, we should have all the confidence in the world in our translations. I think there are some that are better than others. I think they're uh, even. Between ones that I really like, there may be one that does this passage better than another, and another one does, does another passage better, those, those sorts of things. But that's, you know, the work of translation. That is, uh, you know, people doing the, the best work that they can, making uh, you know, decisions on translation to give people uh, translations which are hopefully, you know, easy to understand while also being accurate to the originals. Uh, and I would say even those are going to be my the two things I want out of a, a translation. We'll get to that here in a moment. But, but the Bible is God's very word. And it's God's word down to the very word uh, in those originals. And for a translation, that's going to be really important. Uh, even in the, you know, the way a group goes about a translation. We'll see... Eventually in this class, different types of translations or different philosophies of translation and, uh, and you know, what that shows about how we view uh, the inspiration. But um, I'm going to move on to our, our next part here. We talked about inspiration itself. And then what about, 
what should the results of inspiration be for you and for me uh, that we should understand here? Just a couple. Um, one, to recognize that because this is God's Word, God's Word has authority. The, the Bible has authority because God is the authority. Uh, just as, you know, uh, as a kid, uh, you... Uh, you know, going to school, you're going to miss class, you need a uh, a note from the doctor, and that, that note carries authority because it's from the doctor, or uh, you know, it's from mom saying you can miss class, uh, the, not just in the note itself, uh, but the, it carries the author's authority. Uh, or as you know, a law is passed, uh, that the, it is finally signed by, by the president that it is, it is now law. Uh, those sorts of things that uh, carries that authority of the office. Uh, God's word is our authority because it's God's word that is from Him to us, and so we have here, you know, the word, the Bible carrying the authority of its author, and so it ought to. We ought to treat it like it has that authority. It's a, it's our authority over life. It's to teach me and guide me and. What I believe about heaven and hell, what I believe about sin, what I believe about my relationship with God, what I believe about uh, marriage and finances and work and all sorts of things. Um, it is my authority because it is from the ultimate authority. Uh, two, that because it is God's word, it is what we call inerrant, uh, that is without error. Again, this applies to the very original documents, the autographs. And so we have these results of inspiration of authority and inerrancy. What should I look for as a result of this view of, of inspiration? What should I look for in a translation? I had mentioned them a moment ago, but to look at them again here. Uh, one is that I want it to be accurate. Not just accurate. I want it to be accurate to each word of the, of the originals. Say in the... Uh, again, the Old Testament was originally written in, in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and New Testament was written in, in Greek. And say, I'd, uh, if I'm in the book of Philippians, it's the New Testament, originally written in Greek. I want my English translation to honor, uh, to be accurate to each word that was there in the original. That word was put there by God. That word was important enough to be included there by God. My English translation, I want it to, to honor that. Uh, I want it to be accurate to that. Um, now, this brings us to the other thing that is you know, what I want in a translation. I want it to be accurate to each word because each word's inspired, but also it needs to be readable. It needs to be understandable. And this is where we get into making both of these things work, because you know, no two languages go into each other perfectly that there are going to be some difficult things to, to work through for translators, how to make something uh, accurate to that original while still you know, flowing well and being easily, easily read and understood, those sorts of things. And, and even this is going to be why uh, I would say that translation is, needs to be an ongoing work. It needs to always be going on because language is always changing. And uh, translations need to keep up with with language so that people can understand. Uh, and that's one reason why we have we have many translations that just aren't used much anymore because time has gone on. They don't really you know, work as well anymore for us, and uh, some still stick around. But but language changes, so translations need to so that people could understand them. But still, they need to be accurate to each word. <clears throat> so those are two things that will that I want in a, a translation. And, and again, different translations use a little different maybe philosophies or maybe lean on one of those over the other. Um, you know, for ex- example, um, a translation like the, the New International Version is going to be one of the most easily read translations uh, out there though it's not as accurate to, to each individual word. It actually translates more of a, a thought-for-thought thought, uh, than it does word-for-word. Word. But it is very easy to read, and that's why it's so, uh, so popular. Uh, another one uh, is the New American Standard, 
which goes on the other end of things, where it is very accurate to each word, and, and even to, you know, in Greek, um, you know, word order can be very different from English. So uh, you can kind of see those things um, in, in its English translation, and in the, again, the New American Standard Bible, to where some have kind of called it rigid or, or wooden, that it can be a little harder to read, because it you know, sticks with the original uh, so much. And there are some some that stick with that are word for word, but try to uh, make things flow. You know, the the old King James is, is known for that being very elegant and flowing. New King James tries to follow that tradition. Uh, you know, the English Standard Version and other that's that's like that. That they are they're doing well at being accurate to each word while. Uh, doing their best to be easily understood and to, to flow well in English. And we'll look at, there are even little things that, you know, translators have used to, to help it along and even tools that uh, help the reader to see when it's going on. For example, uh, if you see words in italics in your English translation, that's there to let you know that, you know, this word wasn't in, you know, the Hebrew or the Greek, but we supplied it in English to help you know, it make sense in English, to help it flow. Um, and so just that's the translator showing you, we're here making this easy for you to understand, best we can, while being accurate to the original. So yes, two things I want in a translation because it's inspired. I want it to be accurate to each word because each word is God's word. And I want it to be understandable in my language because God wants his word to be understood. Um, as you'd said back in you know Second Peter one, you know no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation. He does not want this to be just for a, a certain club or, or select few, but it's for all. Uh, that word is to be preached to all. Uh, let's see here. Following that up with just uh, I'm I'm going to wrap up here pretty soon. That we have here. Um, what about interpretation? Because, you know, interpretation is just, you know, interpretation is how do I understand this? How do I get to a meaning in this? And we are interpreting everything all the time. Even as we're speaking to one another, we're interpreting what we're saying. And you know, we know that, you know, sometimes we don't interpret well. Sometimes it's easier to interpret than others. Uh, sometimes we misunderstand. All sorts of things go on, but we're always interpreting. How do we do that with the Bible? Because it has been treated in different ways and still is uh, treated in different ways. Um, some see it as, uh, you know, a big allegory uh, that, you know, these are all spiritual things. They're not real things. They're... Um, that sort of way of looking at it, uh, these aren't true stories or that these are uh, not meant to be you know, direct for me today, but just more spiritual ideas. Um, those are there's some way to look at it, but I think from the, our discussion already on what it means for the Bible to be inspired and for God revealing himself, I would say that uh, the Bible needs to be understood in... Uh, a way that is direct to, to me and applicable today in its very words. Now, there's going to be some definite uh, you know, study to be done, some real context is needed. For example, I can't just uh, open up to a random page in the Old Testament and do what it says, because you know, there's the law there that was written for the people of Israel in that Old Testament time that that may not be for me right now. Uh, things may have may have changed. There, there, there were dietary laws in the Old Testament that you know God, you know, He spoke to Peter in the New Testament and said, you know, now you're free to eat uh, these things that you weren't before. Things like that. That uh, we need context. We need to understand what's going on there. But uh, just three basic things that ought to help us in you know properly understanding the Bible and interpreting it. Uh, one. Uh, this is going to be the, the big one, uh, is that it is, to understand it literally, um, in other words, let the Bible say what it says. To understand it in the same way that you and I would want someone just to understand us as we're speaking. That I'm using my words to speak to you, 
directly. I want to be clear with you. I want you to take my words at face value. I'm, there's not a, a hidden meaning behind what I'm saying and, and how I'm communicating to you, but I'm, you know, I'm giving you an actual message for an actual situation. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you know, we can't use different you know, writing devices like uh, you know, metaphor and simile and, and all these things. Certainly those things are allowed within this, but to, to let a poem be a poem. Uh, you know, when I say take it literally, it don't mean you, you know, when it says the trees clap their hands, that literally trees are clapping hands, but uh, just to take it at face value, to let it be what it is. Uh, to let a poem act as a poem, and it can use you know, flowery language, metaphor, and simile, and, and all of this. Uh, and then also to understand you know, how narrative works, and, and how these what letters are, and how they work, what the Gospels are. But to, to let it say what it says, to be what it is, that I'm not trying to spiritualize it, or to look for hidden meaning. But that, uh, just again, Second Peter 1, you know, 19-21 it is not for any private interpretation. The meaning is there. It's right there in front of us. Uh, it may take some study to you know, understand context, to, to see what was going on. Uh, uh, but it's there. It's not meant to be hidden from us. Uh, but to understand the Bible literally. And it also includes in knowing who the audience is for whatever passage we're talking about. Is this talking to you know, Old Testament Israel? Is this talking to the church? Is this talking to everybody in no matter what time you're in? Uh, those sorts of things. But to let the Bible say what it says. Uh, another thing here simply is uh, grammatical, meaning that we're going to follow the rules of grammar, not to twist things to, uh, to what we want to say, uh, but to you know, see how the words fit together according to how the language is meant to work, and understand it following those rules of grammar. And then third, uh, historical. Uh, meaning that we uh, let the historical context help us in understanding the Bible. You know, the meaning of any word, any sentence, anything, uh, relies heavily on its context. That there are words even today that we could use right now, uh, this is the end of, of 2020 here, that I could use today that meant something different 10 years, 20 years, 50 years ago, and it could mean something different you know, five years from now. Even just look at our culture currently, that between now and, say, five years ago, big things have changed, and the discussions have changed, and uh, and just the context is different. And so just to understand historical context of what's going on, to know that you know, it couldn't mean anything to us today that it, that it couldn't have meant to that original audience. Um, but historical context is going to be important. Uh, things like that, uh, you know, when Jesus would say, you know, I must needs you know, go through Samaria, or, uh, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan, the one who shows love to his neighbor, this Jewish man who was left for dead. Um, like the, the context there is this bad relationship between uh, the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Uh, there was hatred there, and they would avoid each other. And, and the Jewish people would you know, travel around Samaria instead of going through it. And um, that's why it's so powerful in that parable of the Good Samaritan, that the Samaritan is the one who showed love. Uh, when the audience would not have expected that, <laughs> they would have thought, you know, the other characters in the story would have been the one to love, you know, the uh, the priest and those folks. But no, it was the Samaritan, and so that historical context is hugely important, uh, just as it is as you and I speak today. And so we want to know stuff like who wrote this book, when was it written, who were they writing to, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, another example would be in the book of Philippians. Uh, the th- Philippi was this Roman colony, and they were very you know, proud of the fact that they were full-fledged Roman citizens. Uh, and the citizenship was a huge deal to them. And so as Paul writes to them, and he tells them that, uh, you know, in our English it's often translated, you know, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel at the end of chapter 1. That that word, their conduct, is let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. That you are proud of your citizenship as Romans, but we as Christians ought to be proud of our citizenship as Christians, and we ought to live that out. 
we ought to live like we are citizens of a higher kingdom, uh, a kingdom with higher standards, a kingdom that is you know, with God as our, our king. And so that idea of citizenship is, is huge there in that context. So uh, historical context is very helpful in helping us to understand. Um, and so again, uh, for good interpretation, I follow those rules of letting it be literal, grammatical, and historical. Uh, that's my, my personal method for that. Um, one final thing, uh, just very briefly to look at here, uh, the discussion of canon, which is the discussion of what books belong in the Bible. Now, this would be kind of its own thing for, um, maybe it's even its own discussion, but just briefly here uh, to look at what test might you follow to decide what books belong in this Bible? And I believe in a, in a, in a Bible made up of you know, the 66 books that we have. There's some others that have been considered, but uh, they, I believe they would fall short for some of these things. Uh, but what helps us to understand why these books are so special? Um, and to, to, I'll just got five five tests here. One is is simple faith that we are to take at, at faith that this is is God's word to trust God in what He says, and so that's simply going to be part of it. And it's always going to be a part of our relationship with God. As in any system of belief, uh, there's you're going to need faith. Uh, two is that we look at the the scriptures testimony of itself. And also Jesus' testimony of of the scriptures to to read what the Bible says about itself. We already looked at you know, Second Peter one and and Second Timothy two and Matthew five and other there are many other places as well. But to look at what the Bible says about itself, and even to look at what Jesus would say about the Bible, the fact that in his earthly ministry Jesus quoted the Old Testament and referred to the Old Testament as the Word of God is powerful for us. Uh, that God, the Son of God Himself, uh, said, "This is the Word," and and would quote it and would would teach it. And so Jesus' testimony and the Scriptures' testimony. Uh, another, the third one would be, you know, the prophet, uh, prophetic or apostolic authority. So someone in a special position, like a prophet or an apostle, uh, they have authority, you know, from God in their their role in ministry. Um, that's very helpful. So as a as the prophet wrote and spoke, he was an ambassador for God. So he was giving God's word. And so those you know, prophetic books uh, we have are special for us, and, and even their testimony of the rest of Scripture, or the apostles, uh, that it was their teaching, their, their doctrine that was given to them by God, which is the, you know, the foundation of the church. And so you know, as Paul writes as an apostle, or Peter, or the others, uh, that apostolic weight is very important, and even the way that they they refer to each other's writings. You know, Peter talks about Paul's writing as the scriptures. Um, that these things are are important for us, and these are testimonies of you know the trustworthiness of these books. Uh, four would be just to, to look at them as inspired in their in their character. In other words that as you read them and maybe even compare them with others, that they, they stand above the rest, that they they show themselves in their character to be better, <laughs> to, to be different uh, from from other writings. So they just show themselves in their wisdom and their truth and and all that they have in them uh, to be better, to be something special, uh, that these are God's word. And fifth uh, would be consistency. Uh, again, if we build a foundation from uh, you know, Jesus' testimony of the Old Testament to say he, God himself, has pointed to the Old Testament and said, this is God's word, and you've been taught God's word. You should live by God's word. Uh, that we have this testimony of Christ, and then we have this consistency within those books, and then with the New Testament as well, and within the Bible as a whole, just to see this you know, overarching story, we can see this flow throughout it, that we get to see 
consistent doctrine. We get to see, uh, again, the consistent story. We get to see how all these things fit together, uh, which is amazing considering how many authors were involved and also the span of time between the, the writing of the first book to the last book. And I think it's, uh, it's nothing short of you know, miraculous that God would, would do this and oversee this. And just that consistency uh, shows us uh, something special is going on here. Uh, man would not be able to pull that off, even with all this time we've had. Now, there are going to be places where we might get confused, or there are going to be places where it's it's tougher to see that, or uh, things may seem to, to disagree. But often when you dig into those, you'll... Uh, start to see your know, authors you know looking at it from just you know maybe different sides of the same issue for example uh you have Paul talking about the free gift of salvation uh one that we cannot work for um which some have looked at that and think that he disagrees with James who would say in James 2 that your know, faith without works is dead that faith on its own uh isn't enough for salvation. But what James is saying, what Paul is saying, are just two sides of the same coin. That Paul is saying that you cannot work for your salvation, but James is saying that real, genuine salvation will have evidence of it. That you're not working for that salvation, but when God changes your heart, there will be change in your life. And Paul would even say the same thing. He's in a, you know, uh, Ephesians 2. Uh, eight and nine are are often often quoted by by folks for good reason because they teach us something very important about our salvation that is not something we earn at all. But Ephesians two eight for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, uh, not of works lest anyone should boast. That is all very very true and important for us. God's grace is what allows me to be saved. That it's through faith in Him that I can be saved. And I don't work for it at all. I don't have anything to boast about in my salvation. But you follow that up with what Paul says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see here that, yes, I is God great, God's grace that allows me to, to come to salvation. It is through faith in Christ who died for me and rose again that I can be forgiven. But... I'm not saved from sin so that I can be free to do whatever I want, but I'm saved from sin so I can live a life of faithfulness. That life of faithfulness doesn't save me, but it's it's evidence of a salvation that I have already. That's what James is looking at, too. That I can't just say that I have faith and that be it. But true, genuine faith will result in change in my life. And so we have here the same message that that both are saying, that sometimes look contradictory to us. So that's just one example of, of many places like that. You dig into it a little bit more, and you see what's how they are consistent, how it is flowing together, uh, and just proves to us in one way again how trustworthy God's Word is and how valuable it is and how amazing it is. So uh, hopefully this has been a help to you already uh, in our understanding of of the Bible itself and revelation, inspiration, and even, you know, the canon. And we will build off of this going forward and plan to have, you know, discussion of, you know, the manuscripts that, you know, again, we have mounds and mounds of evidence there to to be able to look at also the going from what's going on with those manuscripts to what has happened with translation uh, over the years and how we got to where we are today. So there's going to be some some history, some stuff like that uh, that we'll get to look at that hopefully will be a great help to you, help maybe even clear some things up. And again, the goal, uh, what I believe we should all come away thinking is, wow, God is amazing, and He has given us His Word, and we are so grateful for it, and we can trust what we have in our hands today. We do have great translations. Again, some are better than others, and we'll talk about that. Um, But we have God's trustworthy word in our hands today that we can study and learn from in our own language, which is awesome, which is amazing, and we ought to be so grateful for that, uh, considering there are many that don't have that, considering uh, 
the lengths that people, some have had to go through so that we can have that, and the, the lengths that people go through even today still so that others can have God's Word in their own language. And so let us be thankful for God's Word. Let us dig into God's Word. Uh, let us learn and grow as we study. I hope this has been a great help to you. Uh, again, uh, keep keep listening in. Keep encouraging others to do so as well. Uh, let us know if we can pray for you. Let us know how we can be an encouragement to you. Uh, we are Lansing Avenue Baptist Church in Jackson, Michigan. Uh, come get to know us on Facebook, our website, labcjackson.org, or come see us in person. Uh, we have uh, you know, services 9, 9.45 in the morning on Sundays for Sunday school and 11 o'clock morning service and a 3 o'clock afternoon service during the winter. In the summer, it's 6 o'clock in the evening. But uh, it would be great to get to know you. Uh, i love to share the word with you and uh, see how we might encourage you in your walk with the Lord.